Have you ever talked to someone and after your conversation you went away and you were just like, wow, that was inspirational. Do you know what I mean? I've had that feeling um, with uh, Daryl Gangadu. Actually, um, I was interviewing him and after our interview, I talked to him for almost another hour and just about, you know, life, uh, God, the world. And um, I wish I had recorded that part as well, you know. He's, uh, personally to me, he's an inspiration. And uh, I'm not sure if you know him. He has worked uh, for more than 22 years uh, for the Adventist World Radio as an engineer. And now he's with the Adventist Review. And he's big on innovation. In fact, we're going to talk about innovation today. There are only six countries in this world that this man has not been to. He has been to every other country. He has lived in 40 or even more than 40 countries in the world. And I started this interview with kind of a funny question. I asked him, hey, how did you get wealthy? Here's his response. Well, I, I need to first define uh, wealth, maybe from my perspective. Uh, you see, I started, um, since I was three years old, my parents were missionaries in uh, um, East and West Africa, and uh, um, I really didn't stay anywhere or any one in any one country for more than three years. We were basically hopping along from one country to the other. And um, I, I never attributed uh, wealth as a dollar value or, or euro value. Um, it was more uh, uh, the aspect of connections uh, with people, or with ideas. And for me, wealth is defined as uh, more transcending uh, God's creativity through us. Um, so yeah, I, I'm very weird in the in the definition of wealth that way. Uh, so uh, yes, uh, it, from a from a commercial perspective, sure, um, uh, through through patents and and the sale of patents, uh, I've um, definitely gotten a few a few dollars here and there. Um, uh, however. Also, uh, while in high school, um, I it was kind of a weird experience. I, I went through um, a program called Go 92 in 1992 while, while at Andrews University or Andrews Academy. And uh, um, while there, there was um, there was a missionary program for youth that was being run uh, by some of the seminary um, cultural anthropology students and professors, encouraging the youth to go out and be missionaries. And at that moment, I I I committed to God something that that I must say I have sometimes uh, regretted but I do not anymore and that was um, committing to God the first fruit of my labor whatever that had that meant back then I did not really know um, and uh, um, so for most people it might be um, 
If they write a book also, they would say, all right, the first uh, profit from that book uh, goes to God, uh, right? And they wouldn't touch this. And I, I signed this, this little paper. Uh, it was a bit of a gimmick, but I signed this little paper and, and thought, all right, whatever the first fruit of my labor will be, uh, I'm dedicating this to the Lord. And um, over time, I kind of forgot about it. Until I first started to sell one patent, uh, actually it was a pair of patents to GoPro, uh, the the little camera company, right? Um, and the patent was about um, the algorithm of video stitching multiple angles of camera to make one one three sixty image, and um, that sale resulted in in, in a pretty penny. Um, and uh, it suddenly dawned on me then that hey, that's probably the, the uh, what I had signed up for the that first fruit of my labor, and therefore um, yes, all of that got dedicated then for the Lord's work. But uh, again, rather than just signing it off to uh, the church per se, um, I was very impressed to use that to create something that the church on their own would not have either the ability or the or the uh, long-term view of creating. Um, so I won't really say what it is quite yet. Um, maybe maybe I'll reveal it at the end of the uh, of the podcast. Here we'll see. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing. I, I, I love that definition of wealth, actually, that you were just mentioning at the beginning. I think um, we need to think like that more because also God does not see true wealth in a way that the world sees it. So um, definitely love that. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little more later. Um, but going back to that GoPro story that you were sharing, um, is that your uh, or was that your biggest accomplishment, professionally speaking, the, the you know, that patent or that pair of patent that's that you sell to, uh, that you sold to uh, to GoPro. If you were to uh, look at it from a monetary perspective, uh, so far I'd say yes. Um, however, uh, this was this is just two patents out of ninety six. Um, I still have a few more to sell, but I I don't feel necessarily that this is the right time uh, to sell some of those patents. Um, and to some of them, I'm quite emotionally connected to them uh, and attached to them. I know it's a fault uh, of being emotionally connected uh, or, or that attached to a particular uh, intellectual property uh, to not want to, want to let it go. But uh, I also feel that uh, there is a time and date for many things. And uh, uh, that patent, for example, for, um, for video stitching... Um, I I was developing this back in 95 96 when I was doing my uh, I was finishing my undergrad in computer science and starting my masters at, at Andrews in computer science so that was my uh, my project then um but it was only theoretical the mathematics was only theoretical there was just no no um available consumer uh computing power to be able to to develop this um the original uh, algorithm was for photography. Um, then it, uh, photography is, uh, I mean, videography is just a succession of photos, right? So, uh, so it could easily expand into into the videography aspect of things. But it was uh, really quite a few years after 
so all of that was developed back in 1995, 96, and it was really by 2006 that uh, uh, this started to take the form of an intellectual property that's, that was written that way. Um, and uh, by 2010, that was uh, then sold. Yeah. Wow. So definitely takes a while. It, it, yeah, it takes quite a while to percolate, uh, at least in, in the intellectual property uh, realm, uh, not only from the side of the developer, uh, but also from the side of the readiness for the market to, absor- to, to take it on. Right, so there's two facets to it. You you might have your intellectual property documentation all uh, all ready to go, but if the market does not see that this is useful um, uh, in this day and age, then uh, you'll get very little uh, for it. Uh, so it's it's the right time uh, to uh, to sell in a way that is uh, also, I believe, very inspired uh, uh, divinely. Um, lately, I'm working uh, on another patent. Um, if you haven't picked up uh, lately, I'm quite a bit into the media side of the side of the industry, right? So that vertical is very much connected to media. So uh, lately, I'm working on something that I think is going to be even cooler than 360 video, um, and that has to do with uh, cognitive neuroscience, but uh, the analysis of uh, the brain synoptics that are happening in uh, in a person's mind as they're consuming media. Um, so I am most excited about this latest uh, uh, in innovation or, or, or development in a way. Um, Can I ask you something? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so how do you come up with an idea like that? Like you were just sh- sharing that um, the neuroscience, uh, uh, analyzing thoughts, uh, connecting that to media. How does that happen? Like, how do do you wake up in the morning and then you just you just have that idea when you're showering, or <laughs> like how does that happen? You're not that far. Yes, uh, um, I do keep. Um... Uh, a notebook next to my bedside and very often those ideas torment me almost at night right wake me up it's almost like a nightmare and i have to absolutely jot it down or draw something um and and the funny thing vincent is that when when i do wake up in the next uh the next morning ready for work or ready to to see what i wrote i have a hard time even deciphering my own right deciphering yeah my own writing <laughs> uh, so like what is it that i was writing here uh uh, this is why lately I've I've decided to do more drawings than uh, actual write up of things, uh, because then from a from a pictorial perspective I can pop, I, I find it easier to extrapolate what I was thinking about uh, at at two in the morning. But it's it's usually yeah between two and four a.m. <laughs> Wow, wow, that's that's amazing. Is it it's you said it's a process not only with the patents but also a a, a process for you professionally um uh, as you were as you were developing these things as you were coming up with new ideas. Um now let's say I you know my wife and I we don't have we don't have children yet but you know by God's grace one day we'll have and then let's say I want to I want to have uh, a, a son like you, like, you know, th- that's super innovative, that really pushes things forward. How do I do that? Like, how do I become, uh, how, how do I become innovative? Like, what made you such an innovator? What are the main factors there? So, uh, I'm, I'm still, I'm still figuring that out. Um, I think if it was a, an easy uh, formula, 
um, a lot more people would uh, um, would try to craft kids like this. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I must say that I. Um, I was probably not the easiest child, um, so I probably wouldn't wish on most parents a child like me. <laughs> not that I was rebellious necessarily to my parents. I hope my mom doesn't listen to this. <laughs> um, but um, first of all, it has to do with the environment, um, and the environment shapes uh, a mind in in certain ways. Um, it has to also be. Um, um i i intrinsically believe that um uh, god is the is the epitome of innovation uh, at the end of the day he uh or at the end of the seven days he created um this planet with us uh with humanity in there and uh that perspective of God as an innovator is very is very entrenched in in how I read my Bible. Um, I constantly I constantly explore, for example, just the prophecies of Daniel, right, uh, with the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, I constantly read those with with the optics of how how is that from an innovation perspective so uh, so what i've what i started thinking about is why is it that god gives gold to babylon right and and uh, and silver to the medo persians and bronze to the greeks and iron to and uh, i cannot but help categorizing those different nations in were they the nations that in, innovated the most did god give them a, a, an olympic medal for innovation based on that and my answer uh, from you know within this short period of time is actually a resounding yes um the mesopotamians with the wheel and with air conditioning and with uh, with a lot of those concepts were very much king in uh, in what they brought to, to the human civilization. But these are not just regular innovations, Vincent. These are innovations that, that are very connected to media. Um, and why is God so interested, or why, why am I attributing to God the aspect that he is so interested in media? Uh, it is primarily for the sharing of the gospel. Right. So if if you look at this perspective this way and you look at the dynamics of of Jesus coming on earth and choosing these 12 disciples, uh, realizing that with just these 12, um, turning them into influencers. Right. And having them influence the world with um, differently, each of them differently based on their on their personalities and based on their um their talents, uh, that for me is uh, is the bucket of gold at the end of the rainbow, right? Um, so the the perspective that I see is that um, it is not so much um, it is first recognizing that um, innovation is a God inspired perspective. Uh, to the atheist or to the to the strongly believing uh, Christian, it is it is divinely inspired. Um, so crafting oneself first of all to be a funnel of innovation um, from an inspiration of God and letting this out, um, then um, myself spiritually 
and technically end up be- end up becoming just a funnel of God of God's revelation on earth. Yeah, and I saw this quite a lot in reading um, the biography or, or the, the the stories of some of our early pioneers, right? Um, uh, James White uh, with a printing press and so on. He's got he's got amazing uh, stories. I'm looking at this only purely technically here, uh, Vincent, on how uh, James White was was innovative in printing in color on a printing press that was not designed for color. Um, uh, so that was one. Another one uh, is obviously um, um, uh, Kellogg's, right, uh, during Ellen White's time up, up there in Battle Creek. And the problem with this is, with Kellogg specifically, is that it, it, that funneling of innovation got to his head. And it got to his head to a point that he, in a way, replaced God with his own glory. So, so before, before being ready to start innovating and having all these ideas and, and, and starting crafting to craft this, uh, especially, let's say, for example, if you want to nurture your, your child in this, the first nurturing aspect that I would focus on is nurturing them to understand that God reveals himself through them. And this is, you know, uh, how I interpret um, this, uh, this text in the Bible about your uh, your children will prophesy and your elders will have uh, dreams, right? For me, um, I extrapolate the concept of, of prophecy into technological developments as well. Um, in, that, in that if I get an idea that, uh, for example, with GoPro, that um, stitching a whole bunch of GoPros together here um, and taking a picture of each of these cameras and then uh, resulting that into a, a 360 image, understanding that this might be where, where media or where technology evolves to later on is in a way prophetic, right? Um, so um, if I have an idea... Uh, a technological idea that is not uh, mainstream yet, but by by me crafting this and then putting it on the market and and generating uh, intellectual property assets around this and and releasing it in the market at the right time for me is an accomplishment of some kind of a prophetic uh, process. It is technological. Um, and um, I know seminarians maybe might might tar and feather me for saying things like this, but I see technology. I, this is this is the uh, yeah. This is one side of prophecy that uh, possibly is not is not necessarily taught in in uh, theological classes. Um, the the coming up of an idea and the releasing of it at the right time. Yes, but but you were absolutely right that God is. Uh you know, the epicenter were just the, the, the true source of innovation, right? As you were saying. And I think we need to start right there when we want to teach our children to be innovative. Um, really like that idea that you've been sharing. Uh, and uh, we're actually going to take uh, a short break right now and then talk about your life, how that has shaped you to become the person that you are today and actually made you innovative. And uh, there are some surprising things that we're going to share uh, and, and, and just uh, discover together. So um, stay with us and we'll be right back after a short break break. 
Hive is your number one platform for missional entrepreneurship. Start, grow, and scale your faith-based business with us day by day. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just look for Hive INT. That's Hive International. Hive INT. Let's change this world and the world to come together. Hello, everyone. We're back here. And now we want to just dive into Daryl's life for a little bit. Daryl, tell me, how was it for you growing up? Um, Where did you grow up? And uh, how how did that help you become an innovator? So um, there's a saying that goes, um, uh, that says, necessity is the mother of invention or innovation, right? So uh, I, I must say that uh, up until my my 17th year or so, um, my parents were, were missionaries in, in uh, uh, starting on a little tiny island in Rodrigues Island in the middle of the Indian Ocean and then over to Madagascar and then eventually over to West Africa uh, in, uh, in uh, Ivory Coast or Côte d'Ivoire. Um, what... Uh, in in many of these places, we didn't own uh, a car or or anything, and we were very uh, well to to today's Western world, we would be considered quite poor. Uh, but of course, as uh, as a child that only knew that environment, I felt the most uh, happy for my childhood. Right, I didn't feel poor. Um, I felt that I was well loved uh, by my parents, and uh, also I felt very much connected to the missional. Uh, objective of my dad. Um, So my dad being a missionary, but also uh, being a cultural anthropologist, uh, wanting to understand the different cultures of of wherever uh, he was based at, at and understanding their uh, maybe their mythology and and their, their their history and how to connect the story of creation and all the story of the redemptive Christ um, to their culture was what was my prime directive. That's how I grew up. That's how I lived, pretty much. But in many places, like I remember in Burundi or so, where we would have we would hike uh for days and days and days until we we hit a particular uh village and my my parents would say would 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 assume all right this is a village where we will be uh, settling in for the next six months or so if we're welcomed um uh, and uh, we would mingle then with with that village and learn a little bit of the language enough to start opening up uh, our picture roles for those who remember this and and start telling the story of uh, uh, the biblical narrative uh, invariably, in any of these locations, what we fa- have found is that there's always a story connected to creation, um, and uh, um, there's always a bridge or two to uh, connect and communicate uh, that that truth that we have. Um, with that in mind, uh, what I discovered uh, unconsciously, maybe in my dad, is his innovative ways of sharing the gospel right uh, it is not uh, it is not a formula that he follows all the time uh, or that he followed all the time uh, it was something that he almost i was so impressed by the fact that i thought that he was thinking things on his feet it's like how did you get that idea of connecting uh, our christianity with uh, with this pygmy's uh, 
uh, animist belief of uh, um, yes, there was a creation, and then and then there was a, a snake that became uh, the god of this earth, and therefore this particular nation would follow the the words of the snake. Um, and and my dad coming along and said, "Can I tell you the rest of the story or the other side of the story?" Yes, there was a snake, um, but uh, you know, let's extrapolate on that. So. Um, I'd say that that while my dad was uh, not necessarily a technological innovator, he was very much an innovator from a missiological perspective. Okay, and that's the that's the only part of um, th- that's the only piece of ingredient in a way that that is needed uh, to to get the the pump uh, going. So, growing up uh, in in uh, remote parts of Africa, um, what I have learned is uh, to do wi- uh, to yeah to to create with whatever was available. So with uh, as simple of a shoestring to to entertain myself. So it is not at all like today's uh, society where we see uh, a kid uh, being a little bit restless and their parents handing them an iPad uh, or, or, or a mobile device and uh, them being entertained on YouTube for the rest of the day kind of thing. So I had to create my own entertainment, right? And it needed to be entertaining enough to keep me excited about it. Um, but the other thing is that I engage with other children um, uh, both in East and West Africa, who also had not much. And my parents did not want to necessarily uh, off give me uh, more than what what the c- current uh, villagers of, uh, of that location had. So... Um, I, I remember with some kids we would uh, we would uh, you know build all kinds of contraptions that to, in today's health and safety uh, environment would be completely illegal, right? Um, but it would be definitely uh, definitely innovative uh, that way. Um, in in one part of a little bit more modern uh, country, like like um, over in Ivory Coast, I remember um, going with kids into a car uh, cemetery and picking up uh, ball bearings and then breaking them apart and building a car out of ball bearings and 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 things like this. But this kind of stuck with me for for quite a while. Uh, first of all, um, I would say. I was constantly curious about everything. So I wanted to know how how everything worked uh, as a kid. And uh, then when I was 17, we moved over to um, to Michigan in the U.S. So quite a big cultural shock, as you can imagine, Vincent, um, uh, from uh, little villages in Africa to Berrien Springs in, in the U.S. Uh, and I was so curious about, oh... Um, even a light switch, you know, especially light switches where you could control it from two different locations, one single light from two locations. I understood the process of one switch, one light, but I didn't understand the process. So I'd open it up, uh, you know, and, and 
in the process get electrocuted yes hey that's part of the part of the game if it doesn't kill you it makes you stronger right <laughs> um, but constantly figuring out how all these things worked now i was in high school there in the u.s uh, i hardly spoke english uh, but then it did it didn't deter me from wanting to know more about how things worked um this started actually uh i'm a little bit embarrassed to tell that story but um um when I was about three or four years old, um, my dad had just returned from France um, uh, from his seminary studies in Colonge, and he had brought back with him a cuckoo clock. So at three, four years old, uh, there was this cuckoo clock hung up on the wall, and I was so curious to figure out how it worked inside. How did it tell the time? But more importantly... How did the little bird come out at the right time? And and uh, so he he got it from having traveled into the, in the Black Forest in Germany, and that was his prize, the, his only souvenir of his time in Europe. Um, and he was pretty pretty chaffed about his cuckoo clock. That was a big, but uh, at at three or four years old. Um, I don't remember it so well, but my parents tell me that I decided to climb the cuckoo clock by the chains. Oh. <laughs> got to the top and kind of opened it up. <laughs> to feel, and, and needless to say, the cuckoo clock stopped working after, after that. But it, I mean, that's how far my curiosity went, right? So if you have, if you have children... And the children are curious about things enough to break some of your 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 devices. Consider that an educational process. It is well. It is well. It is good investment in giving them broken things, and letting them putting it back together. Also, another another thing that I remembered is uh, I was impressed by my dad's Nikon camera. This is analog film camera, right? I opened it up and uh, and I prided myself in opening things up and putting it back together and, and it's still working, right? Except that this time, all of the components that I pulled out of his camera did not go, did not fit back in correctly. <laughs> so I was scratching my head and I ended up saying, oh, my dad's going to give me quite the spanking here for realizing that his only camera didn't, didn't work anymore. Wow. So, and all of, the, all of the electronics in it, all the mechanics in it didn't fit anymore. So I filled it with rocks and then put it back together so it kind of felt the same weight. And, uh, oh, yeah, I got the spanking for that one. <laughs> but, um, but needless to say, um, it, it developed that curiosity factor of wanting to learn how things work. Um, and again, if I do it again, I'd, uh, I'd encourage parents, really, um, you know, give your kids broken pieces of, of things and let them put it back together. Get them trained into the process of dismantling and reassembling things. Uh, again, hopefully it working. Yeah. Wow, wonderful. I think that's really practical for all of us and it's very exciting and, and just beautiful to hear these stories. I can see how you experienced true wealth as a, as a young kid in Africa um, so that uh, when the financial wealth you know, came later, uh, God prepared you for that in a way, I believe, you know, and, and also how this curiosity, uh, this, this constant interest that you had uh, really also shaped your, your future life. So thanks so much for sharing that. Now, kind of closing this chapter here uh, for today, um, I wanted to ask you two things. The first thing is, 
what are you working on right now? You know, people might be interested in, in, in hearing like what, how does, how does your job look like working for a magazine? I mean, you've been working for the Adventist World Radio, right? Uh, as an engineer, that's pretty cool. Then going to a, to, to a magazine, isn't that a downgrade? Like how, how, how do you work with, with uh, the Adventist Review now? And, uh, and also, um, yeah, how, we, how can we, uh, let's say, how can I as an, as an 18-year-old, as a 17-year-old in a local church also be, be uh, you know, uh, innovative today? Yeah, um, so while at AWR, or Adventist World Radio, my main job was to install studios worldwide and to to also help, uh, so that was a technical aspect of it, but also to help the producers, train the producers on the technical uh, aspect of how to produce, uh, but also uh, on the philosophical aspect of how do you connect um, our core truth um, or the biblical teaching uh, to the local cultures, right? So um, AWR's perspective uh, uh, had been to reach the hardest to reach people group, and I really, um, I, I really was excited to do to do the dynamics. And then about three years ago, um, at Adventist Review Ministries, um, I got a I got a, a job offer in heading the department of the Media Lab. And at that time, this was not even defined yet. And I said, well, what was the Media Lab about? And they said, well, you define it and you create it. Uh, you, you, you come up with the idea. <laughs> so um, Adventist Review is possibly the oldest ministry, media ministry of our church. It started in 1849 before the brand Adventist was even uh, uh, widely shared, right? So... Um, and it started with James White's uh, idea of uh, printing magazines uh, on those old-fashioned printing presses. They were, uh, at that time, they were mechanically closer to the Gutenberg press than it is to today's uh, laser or linotronic or, or uh, offset printing me- mechanisms, right? Um, but... But James White had the idea of printing things uh, in an innovative way to capture people's interest. And what that meant was that he would uh, often print the main text without the title, and then he would wait for it to dry and then reuse the paper that was already printed and print the title, um, Present Truth was what it was called back then, uh, in a different color or a slightly different dye. now, in the, in the magazine shops and so on where it was sold, it would catch people's attention to realize, hey, there's something with a title in a different color, and we've never seen this before. We're used to seeing things that are only, only black on, on, on uh, tarnished yellow or white. Uh, what is this about? So um, James White really understood the concept of catching a person's attention right at the beginning. Um, maybe from a presentation mode, from the way it's presented, before even uh, getting the person interested or excited about the actual content of the material. So, um, Adventist Review, yes, is the oldest media entity of the church, and you'd think that it is definitely an old-fashioned um, uh, branch of this organization, and yet uh, the current leadership at Adventist Review is, um, 
really inspired themselves from the idea that um, uh, the forward-thinking methodology that James White and his colleagues uh, implemented by thinking, if James White was alive today, what kind of technology would he possibly be using? Would he still be be using print? Uh, And the answer is, not only he would use quite a lot, uh, quite a plethora of of media content, right? So, in today's world, uh, things that really work and that is very dynamic would be uh, um, apart from print. It'd be obviously audio. It'd be obviously um, video. So you're probably watching this on a uh, either on a YouTube channel or or an audio podcast. So these would be the the up and trendy ways of of sharing content, right? But there's but there's other things that are also interesting. Um, concepts like an audiogram, which is a video uh, capture of an audio content. So uh, how do you publish audio in YouTube? Uh, just putting a static image uh, there is kind of boring. So the idea, and this was something that that the um, BBC Research and Development team came up with, uh, taking a picture or static image, but adding a waveform that shows uh, some dynamics and possibly almost like a karaoke of the text going along also um, is useful. So we started implementing things like this with a a product that Advanced Review uh, publishes weekly called Grace Notes uh, as an audiogram. And we've seen our our listenership or our consumption rate skyrocket to over 800,000 per week. Uh, So that's that's a huge dynamics then. Obviously, once that media is created, um, it gets shared on social media platforms and the plethora of content uh, of Instagram and so on. Um, so uh, that would be possibly one way that uh, um, that our pioneer, uh, James White, would, would have published today. But one of my tasks as well at Advanced Review is to dream up of the next media platform that will become a mainstream in five, ten years and already start crafting content for that platform. Yeah. So one, uh, one area of interest is uh, augmented reality. Um, this is a demo here of uh, uh, an augmented reality uh, glass system so it's something it's it's still old and bulky and uh, not really uh, designed for for public market uh, adoption but creating content on these uh, will eventually allow us to transition to the up and coming new uh, uh, connected glasses you know that uh, apple or google might be uh, coming up with um Another area of of development is regular virtual reality, but also how do you convey, how do you use gaming as a platform of information uh, uh, transfer? And uh, in in industry or in the gaming world, um, some of our audience might know, uh, might be familiar with games like Assassin's Creed, yeah, the title is not is not the most holy of of titles, but but the idea is that it 
took the character into different time zones uh, or time periods of civilization, right? It took them to um, medieval Europe uh, in Florence, for example, and, and you get to meet people like Michelangelo and, and see the developments that are, that are happening then, all in a gaming console perspective. So as a person plays the game, they don't really feel like they are learning history, but it's actually a lot more... A lot more pervasive and uh, engages more memory retention mechanisms in in how the brain synoptics work um, to the point that uh, the person memorizes a lot more about history than if they were to read a book. At least this this new generation, right? So, could it be that we could illustrate bi- biblical truths and bibi- biblical knowledge this way, but targeted to an atheist audience? And again, the answer is a resounding yes. So with, uh, with a team of programmers and graphic designers, we're actually working on uh, something that's going to possibly be released uh, uh, early 2022, um, and we're releasing uh, a game that's going to be played then on consoles like the PlayStation 5 and the X- the latest Xbox or even virtual reality glasses. Uh, we're releasing a trilogy of games. Okay, the first one's going to be called Babylon Quest, and it's the it's a full reconstruction of Babylon as it was. Uh, back then, well, by the way, developing this in conjunction with uh, a museum in, in Berlin that you might be familiar with um, that has the Ishtar Gate there. So um, they were very happy that we would uh, create a, a, a game that would illustrate the, 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 style, the lifestyle of people in Mesopotamia back then. So the game uh, uh, actually starts as a game within a game uh, of a young kid who plays um, a particular game called the Royal Game of Ur. And while he's playing this, he he's in a little village, and then because he's a champion of his village, then he gets sent over to a bigger town, and uh, it culminates into the World Championship of the Royal Game of Ur, which, by the way was historically accurate during the time of Daniel uh, in Babylon. So he gets to Babylon. He, uh, Coming from a little village, he comes into Babylon and he looks around and he's all amazed by the, the construction around and the amount of civilization. And while he's there in Babylon, he spends a few years. So you, 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 you live in his shoes pretty much for, uh, for a few uh, episodes of that game. And then you notice that um, the soldiers, the Babylonian soldiers, are coming back from excursions and they're bringing back uh, with them Egyptians, they're bringing back with them uh, conquered Egyptians, that is, or conquered uh, uh, other parts like, like parts of Lydia. And then they bring a whole bunch of people from Israel. And... Um, that kid grows up uh, or, or knows that he's the champion of the world of the game of Ur and nobody else beats him except that while he play, while he continues with his championship, one of the Israelite kids beats him. And I won't reveal more of the story there, 
um, I let that um, percolate in your imagination. But this is a game of Earth. This is uh, what we'll be releasing as um, Babylon Quest. But through the perspective and through the eyes of this non-believer, you explore and you get to become friends with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and you get to hear the, their perspective of, of their worldview, but also you get to understand their belief system, right? So, um, and you actually accompany, in some cases, you accompany Daniel in some of his prophetic dreams, so, um, so Daniel gets the dreams of the beast, and we're actually right now coding the part on Daniel 7. Um, and uh, Daniel is so, so perturbed by this story that the next morning after his dream, you happen to walk in, you, the protagonist of the game, happen to walk in to, to, uh, to his room, and he tells you his dream, and then you get the same dream as well. Uh, and uh, I mean it's just mind blowing and for those who, who know games like Assassin's Creed the quality the, the, the storytelling but the more, more the, the quality of the gameplay and the objects and so on in the game uh, is going to be about 5 to 10 times better than Assassin's Creed uh, only because the technology of game development has has uh, progressed and the graphic cards out there are good enough to be able to be that realistic in the game. But uh, as we're creating a game like this, we're also creating the possibility of multi, multi-purposing the game. So as we've built the terrain, we can run a virtual camera into, into the game scenario and superpose a real human inside a virtual world for them to tell an archaeological story. So, so that's redefining now how movies get created uh, without having to go on site and spending all that money uh, to physically go to a location. We can actually create those, those virtual worlds and put an actual actor in there. Um, so that's what I'm working on. I'm developing those kinds of platforms uh, to basically be ready for where media will be in the next five to ten years yeah praise god that's really amazing uh that sounds very um yeah exciting you know uh who i mean you know you sharing all of the, all of these things uh with me i'm sure our listeners feel the same way we would not at first think about this you know when we hear your job description uh you know uh, media lab you know that can mean a lot of things but it's really exciting i really think it's also very important that we don't stop um trying to reach the atheists of today, the secular uh, young people who grow up in this world, who are surrounded by gaming, and and really use this opportunity uh, to to witness to to these uh, individuals out there. There are millions, right? Millions, uh, if not billions, who are who are uh, you know uh, definitely there. Um, yeah. And and you know, uh, Vincent, uh, to answer another part of your question that I've, I forgot to tackle here is how to get involved, right? Um, a person can be called to be a missionary, but that does not mean that they are they are called to necessarily be past, pastoral or or pastoring uh, or a teacher or maybe a medical doctor or a missionary pilot. There are a lot of new um, environments of being a missionary with the gifts that you feel that you have, right? So. 
if you happen to be a great graphic designer, if you happen to be uh, a great web designer, or um, let's say you like to, to design circuit boards, um, there is as much of an ordination to be a missionary in those areas than there is to be a, a, a missionary preacher, right? So um, in, in the 21st century, we ought to re define the term missionary as not somebody that necessarily need to geographically go to a place where there's no electricity uh, to witness, right? Um, and it also does not mean that you need to be um, equipped with the gift of talking or the gift of preaching or getting up in front of a big audience and, and, and voicing uh, a particular belief. You can express this with whatever uh, skills that you happen to be to, to have been given. Remember the, um, the parable of the talents, right? Um, one who had only one talent and he thought, ah, you know, my master is going to get upset with me. I better bury it and do nothing with it. Uh, don't be that one guy. <laughs> um, be the one that recognizes that the, whatever talent you have might be graphic design or, or photoshopping or, or 3D modeling or game design. Uh, recognize that whatever talent you have, it is, or, it is ordained to be used in the ministry, possibly in a very creative way, uh, or maybe one that our church has possibly not determined or created an avenue for for uh, for being released yet um one platform uh, that i'm a bit involved with in um, in in creating a method or pla- or uh, a, a system to gather those talents and to to use them for the gospel um is uh, a website called art ventist um that is a r t ventist.com and you can sign up and get a free account there and you can um, see any ministries or any entities in the church that are needing um, certain technical skills uh, it could be while we, while we call it art uh, it could be even programming a Cisco router uh, right or um, but definitely if you feel like you're an artist and you want to contribute to uh, to uh, the Lord's work, and by the way, not it, it doesn't mean that it's a free job, right? Um, a lot of those jobs that we post up there are uh, for remuneration. We pay for for this to be done. So think of it as uh, a Fiverr or Upworks, okay, uh, but for Adventists, right? So Adventists tribute that one skill or expand their skill in um, uh, in that area of of the expertise that's the place for you to go wonderful if you happen to um, to have been inspired to create games or write or write game stories uh, and you you feel like uh, you're the only one on earth uh, that is thinking that way you're not um Please get a hold of either myself uh, through Vincent or through the the Hive Camp uh, uh, mailing system, and I'd love to interact with you and to uh, see where we can uh, take this to the next level. Really, yes. 
Thank you so much. Yes, you can always write us and write Daryl through hello at hiveinternational.org. That's hello at hiveinternational.org. My name is Vince. Thank you so much, Daryl, for joining. And uh, you've been listening to the Hive Podcast. Thank you.